Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Merrill Matthews with the Institute for Policy Innovation. Today is March 2nd, 2023, and I'm joined today by longtime IPI friend Matt McCoviak. Matt is an Austin and Washington, D.C.-based political and communications consultant and president of Potomac Strategy Group. He is currently serving as chairman of the Travis County Republican Party, and he frequently writes for publications such as The Washington Times. Today, we're going to be talking about the Texas legislative session, and and the Texas legislature is currently in its every other year session. Uh, we have asked Matt to join us to just discuss what's going on in the session right now, and we'll be doing for the next uh, couple of months. So, Matt, The governor announced that there are seven emergency items that he's focusing on. Current property taxes, ending COVID restrictions, education freedom, school safety, ending the revolving door around bail, securing the border, and fighting the fentanyl crisis. What's the importance of an emergency item from the governor? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, The way the Texas uh, Constitution is set up, uh, there's two things to understand. One, our, our legislative session is 140 days every other year, uh, and only the governor can call the legislature back in outside of that period of time. Uh, and second, within that 140 days, there's a limitation of when the legislature can begin passing bills. I believe it's a 60-day prohibition from mm-hmm. when it starts. So generally, the uh, uh, state of the state addresses the time when the governor lists the emergency items. Those items can be can be taken up within that 60 day window, as soon as the either house, uh, the house or the Senate is, is ready and, and ready to do so. So you're starting to see some movement already, but we're, we're really pretty close to the 60 day threshold. I think already, I think we only have three months left. So um, I don't know that it matters all that much. The more important thing, Merrill, is that it shows these are issues that he thinks need to be addressed. And that, 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 that carries with it an implicit threat that if, if legislature does not move with one unified bill uh, between the house and the Senate on these seven items, he very well may decide to call a special session to address them. And that's something legislators uniformly do not want. Is seven emergency issue items, is that is that a lot or is that about normal? It's high for him. If you look at, you know, his his whatever it is, two and a half or three terms as governor, I think he's usually in the three, four, maybe five range. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think about it, uh, these issues really kind of fall, I think, primarily into two two areas. Uh, one, you know, to me, the most important, I think, is property taxes. It's clear that the action they, they've taken in the past few sessions has not gone far enough, and we have a pretty significant budget surplus that they have to spend. So that, I think, is really probably the, the most urgent uh, uh, item. I think I think there's broad agreement on that, and I think you might even see bipartisan support for whatever the uh, legislative uh, proposal is. Uh, but second is um, public safety. You can put a number of things under the bucket of public safety, the fentanyl crisis, the border uh, border efforts, um, uh, obviously, this is, uh, you know, ending the revolving door around bail that 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 addresses urban di- district attorneys who've been, uh, you know, you know, making our making our cities and our counties less safe with some of the policies they put in place. So he, he wants to see pretty significant action in those two buckets. And I, I think there's agreement between, you know, the governor, lieutenant governor and speaker uh, that, that these things all need to be addressed. Obviously, there's going to be substantive debate between the houses and there may be differences in exactly what the approach is. 
uh, as there is every session. But fundamentally, um, that's where this comes down. You mentioned the budget surplus, and I think that's running around $33 billion or so. And I was talking with another uh, advisor to the governor here the other day, and he mentioned that the rainy day fund is supposed to be up to around, I don't I think he said around $24, $25 billion. And basically he said we've got nearly $60 billion. In the past, there's been some reluctance to dip into the rainy day fund, but given, given how big it's getting, is there more? willingness to dip into that if they want more money for tax relief or other things? Yeah. And uh, generally, the way they've looked at the rainy day fund, uh, which Texas is blessed, I mean, we have the largest rainy day fund of any state, even per capita, certainly on in, in raw terms, but but per capita. Um, and generally, they, the way they look at the rainy day fund is they've tried to not have it fund sort of ongoing costs, but rather one-time investments that that broadly benefit a large number of people. Um, you know, property taxes is interesting because you can kind of describe it in both ways, right? On the one hand, if they were to buy, say they were to buy down the, uh, the M&O portion, the so-called school district portion uh, of property taxes with the significant buy down, that would technically be a one time expense. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my understanding is they're, they're considering uh, uh, in the future uh, dedicating a, a portion of uh of the net uh, rainy, net net revenue, net net positive revenue in future bienniums to try to get property taxes cut in half over a 10-year period. So that might be the way they thread the needle, where they, they use a significant portion to buy it down uh, this this biennium while they have that that ability, which, which you know, this is a one-time opportunity. I don't think we'll probably ever be where we are now mm-hmm. uh, in terms of having this much money to spend this quickly. Um, but the rainy day fund does sit there. Of course, uh, there is a cap on the rainy day fund. Uh, and there's also a spending cap. And so they have to figure out how they're going to address uh, getting the rainy day fund under the spending uh, under the rainy day fund cap. And then also how they address the spending cap issue, because they're they're clearly going to have to bust the spending cap to do the kinds of things they're talking about. And certainly fiscal conservatives have some heartburn about that. Mm-hmm. Now, they've been talking about the property tax relief. I've heard that there's some discussion about sales tax reduction as well. Yeah. And, you know, this kind of gets into ideology a little bit um, and, and sales tax is one of them. I think the other the other you know idea that's been out there is dealing with additional reductions to the franchise tax, the so-called gross receipts tax, which hits which it's business. Mm-hmm. Our sales tax in Texas is pretty high. Eight point two five percent. Of course, we don't uh, have an income tax in Texas. So that's why it's higher. That's a big part of why property taxes are generally higher in Texas than they are in a lot of other states. So look, there are trade-offs uh, depending on exactly, you know, what kind of structure you have in a given state. Um, you're going to see significant tax relief. I think the, 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 the lion's share of it's going to be property taxes because those have been so out of control. Uh, but you may see them tinker with things like sales tax or franchise tax as well. All right. So we've talked about the governor having seven uh, emergency items that he's focusing on. What are some of the other key legislative proposals uh, that are getting some attention and, and, and especially um, uh, ones that you think might have a chance of passing? Well, I mean, there's a range of issues I think you're going to see uh, you get a lot of attention. I'll mention a couple, I think, that are bigger ticket and, and uh, kind of, you know, higher profile at the moment. Um, one is there's an economic incentive program called Chapter 13 that expired at the end of the year. Um, it's a program that... Uh, that, that ties economic investment and job creation to, uh, to tax breaks. Uh, it's been used widely by manufacturers, even some renewable companies, you know, chip, chip companies uh, over the last few years. 
I think some legislators are frustrated. There hasn't been quite as much transparency and accountability in that program as, as they would have liked. So you are going to see, I think, uh, something replace that. That will probably be more narrow. It might even exclude ex- renewables entirely because the federal subsidies for renewables still exist. So I think that's going to be a big issue uh, that's going to that's going to uh, develop over time. Um, there are some social issues, you know, they're going to get attention. Uh, I, I saw yesterday a, a female state rep named Valerie Swanson uh, announced she has seventy-seven co-sponsors for a bill that 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 that, that uh, you know requires bio- biology to be considered in high school sports, so that you can't have um, transgender students uh, you know playing on the other the other on the other biological sport. Uh, that's been something they've tried and tried and tried and has not gotten over the line in recent sessions. If she has already a majority, that shows that as long as the speaker allows it for a vote, you know, that, 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 you know, that could come up. Uh, there'll be other issues. You're going to see the grid uh, in ERCOT, which is uh, the, the primary power provider uh, for, for majority of central Texas. In fact, the majority of Texas, uh, they're, they're going to be re- reforms proposed for that. They're going to get a lot of attention. I'm told that might even lead to a special session by itself because it's mm-hmm. very complicated. Um, and you'll see lots of other issues pop up too. But, but you know, look, in 140 days, there's a limit on what you can do. At the end of the day, uh, the, the best way to kind of have a sense of what's likely to pass is to look at the governor, lieutenant governor, and speaker. Where are the, over, where are the overlap in their priorities? Those things are highly likely to get done. Uh, where are the differences, particularly between the speaker uh, and, and Lieutenant governor, uh, you can always have, you know, priority items get held back by one body and traded at the end. I think that very well may happen. Uh, I should, I should have pointed out school choice, which, which I think in some ways is, is maybe the highest profile fight this legislative session. We've never had, um, as much support broadly, uh, and, and really the kind of political stars aligning the way we have for school choice for an educational savings account, uh, approach like what you've seen in Arizona, mm-hmm. the governor's been doing, uh, these events around the state in, in, in House districts where House members haven't generally been supportive. Uh, he did one uh, in the district of the public education chair uh, uh, in uh, uh, Bell County just uh, just to, in the last week or so. He's done several others. He's got more coming. That is going to be a big fight. The Senate will pass school choice. It does every session. The question is whether the House does and what that bill looks like. So you've got some high profile fights. Uh, but but the uh, the predictor it, to me is to look at the priorities of the speaker and the governor, where there's overlap, where there's disagreement and uh, see how things develop. Well, you mentioned the school choice issue, which when I talk to people, that's one of the things that really surprises them, because Texas is considered one of the most conservative states. And yet we've never been able to pass school choice legislation. So uh, give us a little background as to why it has been so difficult passing it in Texas. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've done some modest things. Um, you know, we've allowed charter schools to, to thrive. Uh, not only did they raise the cap, which is something they did when our now lieutenant governor was the Senate Education Chair, Dan Patrick, uh, but they've also, uh, I forget if it was last session or the session before, I think it might have been the session before, they equalized the tax treatment related to school construction. And that was really, that was a really important thing because charter schools uh, have had to, up, up until then, have had to raise privately all the money necessary to construct a school. Uh, that includes the land, that includes the construction of the buildings and everything on on that land. Uh, you can imagine, uh, if you're dealing in urban environments, which in many cases you are with charter schools, uh, the cost in Austin, Dallas, Houston, San Antonio for that. Uh, now they're going to get the same tax treatment for construction that public schools get, that the traditional you know, brick and mortar public schools get. So so those things have been helpful, but we have we have something like 300,000 uh, kids in, in charter school in Texas. We have something like 60,000 on waiting lists. So it's clear there's a market for uh, the, the parents want uh, choices for their children. 
we do not really have school choice in Texas. Uh, we are nowhere near where Tennessee or Florida or Arizona or a number of other states are. Uh, and, w- and when you say school choice, what you're really talking about is letting the dollars follow the child. Right now, the dollars stay uh, in the school system. Uh, and, and if parents are, are, if their children are trapped in a, in a failing school, unless uh, the state you know, shoots, shuts down that school or they move, they don't have a, an opportunity to, 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 to select where their child goes. The, the, the sad reality, Merrill, is that rich parents have school choice because rich parents would never probably live in a bad school district to begin with. But if their school went bad or something, uh, they would move or they would put their child in a private school or parochial school or something like that. Of course, the COVID era has has opened up all kinds of, of scenarios for pods and homeschooling. Uh, mm-hmm. Parents, I think, are much more willing to consider uh, new options. Uh, and you've had a, a lot of innovation in that space. So it really is time for, for Texas to take this step. In the past, to your question, rural Republicans have been really, the, particularly in the House, rural House Republicans have been uh, the, the problem. Uh, and I think for, to a great extent that has to do with the fact that their school districts are in many cases their largest employer, their teachers, uh, their, their employees at these school districts, their superintendents lobby furiously against this, even though you would presume that rural areas are likely to be among the last to get school choice options, even if a school choice bill passes. So they're, they're fearing competition, which in some ways tells you something. But in another, uh, the reality is that competition is, is going to materialize late, if at all, over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Generally, uh, you know, any, anyone who's against competition is, is doing it because they're operating, operating from a monopoly. Uh, consumers always benefit from competition. That's true if, it's, if you're dealing with, uh, with razor blades or if you're dealing with education. It's true in almost every aspect of, of, of life. Now, you, we've already talked a little bit, and you mentioned that Texas have a, has a very short legislative session every other year. It, given all of the issues that are that that now uh, face the states and just, you know, it's it's there's just much more going on than there was years and years and decades ago when this came up. Uh, is that is that short legislative session a feature or a bug? I think it's a feature, because if you if you if you believe limited government is a good thing, that government literally threatens liberty, um, then then they have less time to 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 uh, to limit your liberty, your personal liberty. Uh, what it does is it makes them focus on the things that are most important and not legislate everything under the sun. Uh, states like New York have have year round legislatures. And I mean, you can just tell the number of bills they pass in a year, the amount of regulation, the cost of business. It's just it's it's stifling. It's it's uh, it's you know, it's really kind of insane. Um, you know, could we possibly amend what we have? It's possible. And of course, if things come up, uh, you can call a special session. We had several special sessions two years ago. Related to redistricting, related to work that didn't get done, the Democrats and House Democrats went to D.C. to flee to not to to break a quorum. Mm-hmm. So those things can happen. And I, as I said, I think if they don't get reforms done to the grid and to ERCOT, I think that is a very high profile issue that both the governor and lieutenant governor think needs it needs uh, needs attention. So I think a special session is probably a sixty percent uh, possibility, but I think it'll be narrow if it happens. But again, you look at the seven issues the governor put on the call. If he only gets three or four of them passed and sent to his desk, and if he's doing one already on on ERCOT and the grid. He very well may add two or three of those uh, to the special session call. And of course, that 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 what that does is that raises the specter of a special session that doesn't last a few days or a week, but lasts the entire 30 days. And of course, if those things don't get done, then he can always call another one. And he has shown a willingness to do that. Hmm. So let's talk about another unusual feature uh, in Texas, and that's the House Speaker has appointed some Democrats to head certain committees. Uh, even though Republicans have a large majority. And I thought at one point, I, I mean, 
the former House Speaker Joe Strauss did that, and the, he got some criticism for doing that. But I understand that's I, I thought that was an unusual practice. My understanding is it had happened before in Texas, though my sense is it doesn't happen in many other states. What, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I haven't studied a ton of other states. The only other one state that I've worked with uh, legislatively is Alaska, and um, Alaska does have both. That's that that has as much to do, though, with uh, their urban rural divide, which is in some ways more important than than their R versus D divide, partisan divide. Um, the, the, the simple fact is uh, in Texas, we have had bipartisan committee chairs really for almost the entirety of the Texas House. And and it is important to understand the difference in how the House Speaker is is selected and how the, the Senate President, the Lieutenant Governor, is selected. Uh, the Senate President, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, is elected by the entire state ele- statewide electorate. He is a statewide official. Uh, he runs in a primary, and then he runs in a general election. And he's elected just the same way the governor or ten- attorney general or comptroller are elected. Uh, he has uh, power that is de- that is de- devolved to him or delineated to him in the rules package that's passed at the beginning of the legislative session. And he has more power probably now than almost any lieutenant governor in my lifetime, possible exception being Bob Bullock. But he has amassed power over time, and, he, and, and the, the Senate has become more and more and more conservative. It's the most conservative it's ever been. Hmm. Um, the House... The speaker is not elected by the statewide electorate. In fact, he's elected by first uh, to the House by his his individual House district. We have 150 House districts. Uh, and then he's elected by the members. Um, and so in the end, the reason we have Democratic chairs is that the speaker is elected by Republicans and Democrats. Now, he did get pressure. He had 13 Democratic chairs uh, last session two years ago. He only appointed eight this time. That decrease, I think, is a reflection of two things. One, he is mad at the members who went away for the quorum busts. So none of them are, are chairs or leadership roles. <laughs> uh, and, and second, though, it is, I think, a reflection of the grassroots pressure. I don't think he would admit that. Uh, but the other thing that's important to understand about the House is uh, individual House members have a lot of power. If they if they understand the rules, they understand per floor procedure, Robert's rules and floor procedure. They can really muck up the works on the floor with points of order. Uh, you generally see that, that 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 tactic used the last week or two as they try to block things they don't like. But they can use those tools earlier on. And generally, they don't do that if they have a seat at the table. So it, it comes down to uh, two things. One, which committees uh, are Democrats chairing and what does that mean for priority bills? And two, the speaker uh, refers bills to committee and he can refer any bill to any committee he wants. Generally, they're supposed to be sort of a substantive connection, right? You wouldn't want to put a, a board security bill, you know, in, uh, you know, in an election committee, for example. And he doesn't do that. And they, that hasn't been done. But Generally, there's two or three options for almost any bill. Um, and so when you look at priority bills, oftentimes they will put them in front of committees that have Republican chairs. So anyway, that's that's all the background and the history on that. It explains why it is what it is. Uh, do I think a Democratic speaker, if we have a Democratic speaker, do I think they would appoint Republican chairs? Uh, I do. I do. I do think they would, at least in the short term. Mm-hmm. But it would depend on how that person's elected, who that person is, where we are politically in Texas. Uh, a lot of those things can change. Well, Matt, you're just a wealth of knowledge on uh, Texas politics. And, and if people want to reach out to you, you have a blog, the the Must Read Texas blog. Tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, it's actually a newsletter. It's on Substack, yeah. mustreadtexas.substack.com. We produce uh, a morning email that goes to 18,000 people that, that, that has all the top news from around the state. Uh, we recognize that people don't wake up and read four or five Texas newspapers every day. You can't do it. You don't have the time. You don't want to subscribe to all of them. Uh, we do that for you, and we put all the top news in one clean, easy-to-read uh, easy email. We have tremendously positive feedback about the product, 18,000 subscribers. There's a free one-week trial, $7 a month, $70 a year. 
$350 lifetime subscription are, are, are the options. And uh, any of your listeners can can check that out at musttreetexas.substack.com. Well, thank you for joining us and sharing your uh, insights on Texas. Thank you so much. Take care. And we invite you to visit our website at IPI.org and to sign up if you'd like to receive notices of our new podcast and content and events. Uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform? You can also help sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time. <music>